It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOT podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts. Don't forget to check out our corporate career boost recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com. Hello, this is Dr. Jeremy Lookaball, workplace communication and negotiation coach, as well as industrial organizational psychology consultant. In addition to seabock.com that you just heard, you can also visit my website at termboot.com. Also on the panel today, we have Trip Braden of Strategic Performance Partners. Trip's an executive coach, leadership team advisor, and the 2021 one of the top 30 global diversity and inclusion influencers. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw, voice and speech coach and a damn good actor at that. He is the leading voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Today, how IOs make leaders out of individual contributors. And this this is something that has been uh, recently brought to my attention because um, we've all talked about you know managers versus leaders, but how can we take those individual contributors and really coach them to get to the next step, to get them to, even if they're not in a leadership position, to start to be seen as leaders in their team because leadership is really everywhere. And also that what we're going to talk about today is how do we coach managers to coach their individual contributors to start to um, give them more opportunities for leadership opportunities. We can look at this kind of like a long-term, long, longer-term succession planning thing too, because we obviously don't want individual contributors to stay that way. And during our last talk, we spoke, uh, we brought up about how many managers, many leaders in organizations get promoted because they're good at a task, but they're not necessarily good at leading people. And they may even stink at leading people. And how do we start to um, massage that so that we're in a better position? Tom, welcome. Good to see you here. So that's where, that's what our topic is today. Again, please uh, feel free to raise your hand. We'll also bring some people up. Feel free to raise your hand. If you would like to come up and speak, this is an open forum. It is your forum, and good to see everyone here. I see Angela, Ariana, Brendan, Heather, Robin, Christina, uh, Saluame, Cordette, Linda, and Terry, and Nastasha. Welcome back. And Sarah, I see you have joined us. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Tom, I'm going to turn it over to you for moderation as I make you and Sarah moderators as well. And Tom, I'm going to allow you to either pose a question, throw it right over to someone, uh, but it's going to be yours here in five, four, three, two, one. Tom, go ahead and take it away. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy, and welcome everybody. Uh, great question today. Uh, let's actually go around the stage to start up. Uh, Trip, let's start with you. Your thoughts on this topic? Well, it's an interesting topic because I think there's a lot of uh, nuance to it. 
I think one of the challenges ultimately is how do we make great leaders and what, what does the organizations need? But more importantly today, I think that the question we have to be thinking is what do our followers and what do the team members want? I think that's the biggest change I've seen in the last 18 months is ultimately how do we help people become who they need to be to be performing as a leader? And I, and I think it's kind of fascinating because I think the other part of this is I think sometimes, especially in, in times where there's a lot of ambiguity, we tend to look to people and say, you have to lead. And what we're really looking for is people that know how to manage different aspects of the role, help manage us. But there's one word that's in common with both re really to me is leadership and management, and that's the relationship you build with your team. And I think a lot of people miss that. And I think it's a place where you can really help them do it very quickly. So I, I would toss out as a thought, and I'd love to hear what people think about that, is how do we, how do we build a, a better team by building a better individual? So that's my thoughts at the beginning. Thanks. You're very welcome, Tripp. Uh, some great opening thoughts there. Sarah, let's go to you. Good morning, everyone. I just want to say hi, and I am happy to be here as always. To piggyback on what Tripp said, the difference really in this instance is not, in my opinion, so much about um, creating a great leader. It's really the target of the conversation, which is how to make great leaders out of individual contributors, because individual contributors are very different in their role in regards to what's expected of them. They also tend to have very different traits if we're looking at them personality-wise. Um, individual contributors tend to be a little bit more introverted. They tend to be more on the creative side of things, big picture thinkers a lot of the time, or highly technical, right? So it's really important that as the individual contributor, they understand that they do have the capabilities to lead, but that it to be a little bit more outside of the general scope of what they're used to doing within the organization and provide them that um, feedback and support throughout their journey as well. We can't just assume that everyone is capable of being a leader um, right from the jump. Um, some people aren't really comfortable with that. And so if we give them the tools and, and feedback necessary to be able to manage, as Tripp said, um, then I think we're going to be self up, setting them up for success. So it, at the end of the day, it really is an understanding the difference between what is an individual contributor and what is a people manager and understanding that the sentiment and the natural tendencies of those types of individuals, at least those that are drawn to that initially, are usually very different and being cognizant of that in our approach. Thanks so much, everybody. And thank you very much for that, Sarah. Uh, let me ask you a question because you, you kind of brought this up. You know, if we can spot potential uh, in someone who is a leader, uh, do we have to approach them, especially if there's someone who maybe is that introvert who doesn't see themselves as a leader? Can we really motivate them to take on that responsibility? At the end of the day, that's an individual choice. So I think it's important to outline what is going to be expected. So setting those expectations early is really important. Um, as well as talking about scope of responsibility and the amount of oversight, because that's another thing that individuals can, individual contributors deal with less of is that oversight, that constant checking in um, is usually a lot less for that type of role. Um, they usually just come through with their deliverable or whatever it is, and they're, they're checking in on timelines and that sort of thing, but they're less intimately involved in team dynamics. 
So because of that, it's really important that you set those expectations clearly and ahead of time. Um, and also just, I think that there's a, a way that an individual contributor can be a leader through the inset, uh, the, the lens of inspirational leadership. So um, I don't necessarily think that you have to be in charge of a team in order to be a leader. And I may be, you know, an outsider in thinking that, but you can influence individuals within an organization very easily as an individual contributor by setting the example, by coming up with new innovative, creative ways to solve problems and the like. You don't necessarily have to be managing others in order to be a leader, in my opinion. And thank you very much for that. Christina, nice to see you back on the stage. Um, you've probably had some experience in this, uh, with this question. Um, do you want to unmute your mic and sort of share us some, not only your thoughts on the topic, but any you know, experience that you might have had here? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I am excited to be here as well. And I do agree with both what Tripp and Sarah said. I think it's really important that when you initially meet somebody or initially have them on your team, whether they're a leader or not, to, um, to get to know them personally, find out what motivates them, find out what... Um, you know, what they like and what they don't like and how they like to be treated or how they like to be managed in order to um, push them up in in the company or push them up in the, whatever role they choose. And um, it's really important to meet people right where they're at um, in order to make them feel like they're worthy right when they get there, like they're worthy of your time, they're worthy of your effort in order to further build them up because if they don't feel like they're worthy when they get there um, they're not going to perform as well as they could anyway obviously so um, it's it's gone are the days when you know when you don't you know you don't necessarily know your manager you walk in there and maybe hand them some papers and, and walk back out of the office without saying very much or you know whatever because it's not it's more and more going to what is needed from the employee not what does the employer want um, so um, yeah, I think that's what I have to add to it. My uh, question for all of you would be, how do you feel about like assessments like the DISC assessment or things like that in in different organizations to find out what uh, what type of personalities they have? Uh, Tripp, I see you've got your hand up. You want to uh, speak to that? Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's a couple of commonalities that I would point out just because I'm not an introvert uh, and not because I've never had to manage a lot of introverts as for a job when I was early in my career. One of the weird things we're, we're missing, I think, as well, is two other elements. One is technology. I think that we're going to see a lot more technology. And how do people manage that transition? I think it's going to be a critical opportunity for us to, to really help build better leaders and managers. Uh, the other one is we, we keep hearing a lot, but we don't hear anything about salespeople uh, and extroversion and some of the things that you typically find on your sales teams. And in a lot of ways, they've had the hardest time in the last 18 months because they've had to stay outside and they've had to go out and do things that they haven't been comfortable with. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity for IOs uh, to help with that particular transition back into a more traditional role. But I also think looking at it from the point of view of, you know, do people choose to be a leader or not? I, I think one of the, the questions is how, how far do you go to help people who have the natural tendencies towards this? Uh, but don't have the aptitudes or the other extreme, which is uh, salespeople are always selling people their ideas and convincing people and persuading people. And, and sometimes they give us a misread on what's really going on in the marketplace. And I think part of the manager's role and the team leader's role are to really 
put those ideas back into the into the organization and work towards a goal. Uh, I think a lot of people in this room, I think everyone in this room could could double their opportunities inside the organizations by simply working with the sales and business development teams because there's such a need for that. And if you think about what they've been through in the last 18 months um, and the opportunities to work with them to do things together because it's a whole different role when you're doing it. Now I think sales is 65% done before we even get to talk to them. So how do you help prepare your people for that last 35%? So I suggest that, you know, when you talk about assessments and the ta- uh, all these capabilities, to get the right one because there's so many great assessments out there. But many times they're really driven by, uh, I would think, the, the thinking profession, for lack of a better term. Not to say my salespeople don't think. But I do think there, there is a difference in distinction that we need to make sure that when we're assessing people, we're using instruments that are going to allow us to, to better understand the type of person we're dealing with. And there's a lot of tools out there. And a lot of times I find my clients are mismatched. You know, they use a certain type of tool that probably isn't the best tool for what they're trying to accomplish. And I'd love to hear what people think about how do you change clients' preferences internally when they've been using something because they say, oh, we have the standard process. We go through this. We do this disk. And you say, I'm not sure that's the best application of a test for what you're trying to accomplish. So what do you guys think? I mean, what are you guys using? I'd love to hear from people who are actually using this and how they influence people to to use different instruments if that's needed. I was, was going to say, ahead, I know Sarah, when it comes to assessments, uh, Sarah, I'm going to just take the opportunity to throw it to you because I know you're going to come out swinging on the whole assessment thing. So Sarah, go for it. I want to start by saying I am in no way, shape or form an expert when it comes to all of the assessments out there. However, as a trained psychometrician, it is my job to be inquisitive when it comes to the use um, and the appropriate use of these assessments, right? As Tripp was mentioning. Now, as far as DISC, I might upset a few people in the room. Um, In my mind, I would never use that tool personally because of the history of the tool. The tool was developed by the same individual that came up with the concept of Wonder Woman. And originally the S stood for submission because they were looking to find submissive females in the workforce. Look it up, it's a thing. Um, Know your history about assessments, it's really important. Um, The second thing I would say is if you're going to begin um, using assessments as part of your practice, it's incredibly imperative that you do your research, not just on the history, but also the application of these tools. It's not as easy as giving an MBTI assessment or something like that and then sitting down and telling someone you're an INFJ. And then here's a pamphlet of how you behave in the workforce. It's not as easy as all of that. Um, You really have to understand the nuance of interpreting these types of assessments and just understand the, the operational capacity of what the person is expected to do within their role. You also have to understand different lines of business. So as a psychometrician, it's really important that you study those lines of business, especially if you're going to be working with a specific one. Um, We seem to keep going back to sales. Um, Not sure why, but maybe that's because sales gives us all a job at the end of the day. That's usually my joke. Um, But In the instance of sales, it can be incredibly useful to use these types of assessments. I, of course, I always recommend that a battery is used. So I never limit my clients to just one particular type of assessment. Um, I think it's really important to dive into not only personality, um, behavior, skills, aptitudes, preferences, 
um, the whole gamma is really where you need to be able to go because that's where you get that big picture view of what might actually be going on within the team or the organization or within that individual's career progression. And it really just depends on what type of um, problem you're trying to solve. But I could talk about assessments all day long. So for anyone who wants to be able to connect with me or has questions about different assessments they may have heard of, um, I am connected pretty well in that space. And if I can't answer your question, I can surely find someone who can. Thank you. So if you have any questions, uh, the great offer, Sarah, thank you very much. Uh, reach out to Sarah and you can have that discussion. Uh, Brendan and Anastasia, welcome to the stage. Uh, I'm going to get to you guys in a moment. But first, Jeremy, I, let's see. Uh, I see you have your hand up. Uh, let's go with you. But you have to unmute your mic or did you just bring There we go. Up? How about yes. that? Hey, I, hey that's better. So to keep going with this, um, this discussion, uh, this question that Christine asked about assessments and to add to the mysterious and to get people thinking about, hey, I'm curious, let's connect in another, in another way. So there is someone, so there's 18 people in this room and there's someone in this room that uh, have a non-spoken banter back and forth about which is the perfect assessment to use. And you know who, who I'm talking about if you're in this room. Uh, and it's interesting because what we, we look at high stakes situations versus low stakes situations. So I have a preferred assessment that I use for my high stakes situations. So something like a disc to go to uh, Christina's question, something like if you're a, there are situations in, in low stakes situations where these kinds of things can be helpful. And I think that's a reason why certain assessments, when you look at, I, I don't, I, I'm long past knowing the, uh, the letter system for the grading, but when you look at these psychological assessments, there's a letter grading system. I think it's C, it's, I have it backwards maybe. It's like C, you have to have a PhD, B, you have to have a master's degree, and then um, A, you uh, can be like, a, like an HR generalist with a bachelor's degree. So there's, there's different things, but there, are, there is utility in these A assessments that are for low stake situations, and that can be used just for things like team development, curiosity, uh, and that's something where your your disc and your even I'll put in your, like the big five and your MBTI in that in that category of low stakes situations. These should not be used for hiring, for firing, for any of these high stakes situations. Uh, but they can have utility, and it's it's kind of, it's that question of either they don't get used at all, where they could have utility because we don't have the people in the organization that are. Um, qualified and able to actually purchase and use these assessments or you don't use them at all. So um, on, on to the assessment, when you look at an assessment to use in the organization, uh, the assessment that I prefer is, so I prefer, I, I like the 16 PF and this person that I have a banter back and forth. Sometimes I think this person isn't sure, uh, <laughs> I know I'm going to get a response, isn't sure. I don't think they're talking about the, the right assessment that I'm the same assessment that I'm talking about. The 16 PF, when you look when you look through it, it's got a 240 plus page technical manual of 200 with all the with all the data, all the research, everything that goes into it. And I think that either sometimes people take these uh, assessments and they if they have access to them just because they have a degree, they don't necessarily take the time to become an expert in that assessment and use it properly. To use an assessment property, you, you have to go through that entire manual and you have to 
you have to highlight and every time you do an assessment, you have to go back to the, the parts that you found are important because your job as someone who's reading and interpreting assessment in order to do coaching is to find anomalies. You know, what, what, which of these characteristics, which of these subscales are supposed to correlate with another subscale, but don't. And that's a particular talking point because when you look at the norming data, that's an anomaly. That's a great talking point to say, hey, you know, hey, most people, if they're this, they're this, your, your, your results show up different. And let's have a conversation about that. So there's great utility in really understanding the entire assessment. The other thing, just so people don't get, tra uh, I don't want to say trapped into this, but, but best word choice for now. If you have a PhD, you do not have to get 99% of the assessments out there. You don't have to get certified in there. Certification for any, now do I suggest it? Sure, if you don't take the time to use your education, to use your resources, to look at the manual, to reach out, to find everything you need to become an expert. Yes, uh, if you're not gonna do that on your own then go through certification. But certification is generally $2,500, no matter which assessment it is, 2,000 to $3,000. You don't need to be certified in Hogan. You don't need to be certified in 16PF. You don't need to be certified in Colby. You don't need to, you don't need to be certified in these high stakes uh, assessments because you can go and you can buy them and you can use them and then you're done. But you have, be, because you're able to buy them, it's because you've reached this level of confidence because of your education and your experience level. So I wanted to throw out those very important details because a lot of people don't know that those things. And a lot of people, when they think of an assessment, they think, all right, discs, so it's a good assessment, so we can just use it for hiring and everything. And a lot of companies, what's HR's job? Keep the company out of legal hot water. What happens when you use disc for hiring and somebody sues you for uh, uh, hiring practices? You're in hot water. So use an assessment that's valid, something that can hold up in court if you are using it for high stakes situation. Uh, Tom back over or Sarah, because you unmute your mic, go ahead. Sorry, 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 I just wanted to say really quickly that I have an excellent infographic for all of the different assessments that are out there, as well as all of like the newer technical solutions that are coming to market that are these all in one solutions that incorporate assessments into their platforms and for which lines of business they are appropriate. So for anyone who wants that, I can send that over to you. Um, it is proprietary to me, but I have no problem sharing it on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But that way, um, if you have a specific client or something like that, you're able to look within that hierarchy and say, oh, this is what I should be using, or no, this tool does not have what I need to be able to move forward here. Well, thank you very much for that, Sarah, and Jeremy as well. Uh, Brendan. Uh, you want to unmute your mic and share some of your thoughts so far. Uh, thank you, Tom. I've been I've been taking notes just to make sure uh, I don't lose my train of thought on multiple things that have already been brought up because there's a lot of great discussion going on. Uh, so I want to come back to the original uh, leader out of individual contributor versus leader out of a people manager. Now there's a a huge motivation. Um, aspect to that where you can have an, an individual contributor and if they are right within your company's culture and a champion of your company's culture they're a leader almost of the company's culture because they're motivating other employees they're making other employees feel more comfortable at work and that is ultimately helping other employees to perform um, so that's definitely something i wanted to touch on 
the other thing that when we're talking about assessments, assessments are a tool. And I say that specifically that it's a tool. A hammer will not do the job of a screwdriver and uh, in certain uh, scenarios and vice versa. And just from the real world application of this, I have seen organizations where they try to use a tool and they try to make it the one and done or, you know, um, they, the person great on their interview, but then we go and give this, this person the assessment and all of a sudden, like, we're going to use that as the cutoff. That is probably the worst strategy you could do. You need to use it all in congruence with each other within making certain decisions. And the other thing within this is you shouldn't just use it once and then, oh, yeah, just put it in, in a uh, – throw it in the trash or throw it in the employee's file folder. These should be ongoing conversations where you're directing this employee's career towards their strengths and guiding them to becoming a top performer and hopefully within your succession plan, a leader of your organization. And that's kind of what I have for right now. Some great thoughts there, Brendan. Uh, Nastasia, go ahead. Hi, everyone. Um, so just a few thoughts on the assessment piece, especially. I don't think that this has come up yet, but looking at adverse impact of assessments is also key in terms of selecting the assessments that you use within your organization and for what purposes. Definitely agree with everything that has been said in terms of using assessments congruently with everything else that you're using. Um, it's not just a one done kind of thing. Also, um, ensuring that managers are trained on how they should be looking at assessments results as well, because even though you may have SMEs who are the administrators of these assessments, making sure managers are trained on what they're exactly looking at. Um, also understanding that they have their own biases as well. So people will tend to like to hire people just like themselves, which does not ultimately work well for the team. Um, so looking at the assessment results as kind of how does this person fit into the overall goal? Where are their strengths? Um, what gaps or areas of development do they need in order, you know, like to benefit the team? But they don't necessarily have to be a direct match for someone who was previously in the role and their assessment results said this or vice versa. So I think looking at those things as well and communicating those nuances to hiring managers. And just going back to the question too of, how do you make great leaders out of individual contributors? I think a key aspect of that is also putting them through a gradual approach. Um, as Sarah had mentioned, like the scope changes from being an IC to then being, uh, whether it be a people manager or just a leader in the organization in general. So whether that's teaming them up with someone as a mentor within the organization, um, starting them off small where you get to lead a project maybe before you take on a full team or see what they would be like as a mentor to someone else just so they kind of get that um, interactive aspect of what it would be to be either a people leader, uh, people manager, or just a leader overall in the organization. So I think timing is key and identifying where that person's strengths and gaps are and helping them to develop that before they're propelled into that position. Yeah. Great yeah. insight. I couldn't agree more. I, 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 uh, trip, I see your hand up. Uh, comment. Uh, and if I mispronounce your name, I'm very sorry. Uh, diversity is a huge issue here. And I, and I think we really have to understand, and I've had a lot of conversations uh, about this issue over the last 90 to 180 days about how assessments are biased sometimes and we're not conscious of it. And more importantly than just the bias of the assessment, it's the bias of the individual who t is, is overseeing the assessment's um, distribution. 
I think this is a conversation you want to talk about. How do you help people be better contributors, help them learn more about what's going on in diversity and make and challenge their thinking? Uh, I do this a lot. Uh, the, and it's because a lot of my job is to go out and find diversity suppliers and partners for my bigger organizations. But I have to tell you, uh, having watched a number of people who are very gifted people struggle with certain assessments, and I won't say which ones because uh, I don't want to bias people, but there's definitely a bias there. And I think we need as uh, professionals supporting management and leadership in our organizations to bring this conversation to the forefront. You know, I, I think there's a real opportunity for us to have impact in just changing the way we've always done it. I can think of two or three Fortune 10 companies I know who've used the same assessment for 20 years because, well, they found it and it kept them on, you know, out of trouble. That's not good enough today, especially if you start looking at some of the practices that have happened for the last 20 years in corporations, how they've used these tools. And the managers can't be blamed because they were never taught anything more than, hey, you're going to get some results. Here you go. And then I, I call it the thumbs up training method, which is go get this. <laughs> I think we have to take this seriously. If you're going to use these kinds of tools, uh, I also think they have to be new tools created. I don't think the tools uh, we, I don't think, I'd love to hear Sarah's thoughts. Many of the tools that I, I grew up on uh, are really missing the mark today. And I can see it, especially when I'm not doing the assessment because I'm involved in it, but I'm kind of the overseer of what the assessment's doing. But there's so many tools out there that probably need to be upgraded, you know, and, and, and it, or replaced. And I think that's the other place where you can create significant value with your with your internal customers is helping them better understand their options like Sarah does. And I think the other is be willing to be provocative enough um, to challenge traditional thinking in some of these areas because it's always been done that way. Isn't a good enough excuse today, especially in dealing in the new uh, uh, ensemble economy where you're dealing with all kinds of cultures all over the world with all kinds of cultures. And those are just the realities of the workplace today. And we need to help people understand the impact these assessments have on our subconscious decision-making processes. So that was what I wanted to say. Thanks, Trip. I see Sarah has a response for you. Go ahead, Sarah. Just real quick. I don't want to monopolize the conversation or anything. You can hear me, right? My mic says I'm muted. Well, okay, perfect. I'm not trying to monopolize here, but I do want to say just based on what Tripp was discussing that another component to sourcing out these assessments is making sure that they have uh, cross-cultural studies. Please, 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 and thank you. Um, if it is something that is only used in predominantly the United States, it is likely incredibly biased. It is not incredibly accurate. Um, you know, it took me a solid 18 months to vet 90% of the assessments available before I even decided which ones I was gonna make a part of my business and, and the work that I do. Now I trial out new ones all the time. I'm constantly getting contacted by newer companies that are launching assessments um, and they want me to kind of trial their solution and that sort of thing. And I do occasionally take them up on that offer, especially if they have, um, like I said, those those cross-cultural studies or um, making sure that they are addressing the language um, within the test itself. So they're doing that, that specific factor analysis and all of that. If they're doing all of that extra work um, and I see that happening, I am much more likely to trial out that solution. So please, uh, in, in addition to the history, make sure that you are also looking at 
what types of um, evidence is behind the assessment and that it is not just predominantly American, right? Um, because we want to make sure that we're being inclusive because a lot of lines of business, you know, they may start within America, but if you're working with larger organizations and they're doing business all over the world, it, it really doesn't help you to limit yourself when it comes to these assessments is what I'm saying. So the, the better um, that this assessment has been designed and studied and, and tested across different um, samples and, and populations, the better off you're setting yourself up for success and, and sustainable success moving forward. You know, as Tripp had mentioned, a lot of these assessments and tools, they really do need a revamp. And you want to make sure that your selection process is setting you up to, to be sustainable in your design. And also just making sure that you're not wasting a ton of your time. Um, it's very tempting to go with something that's pop culture that everybody knows like disc or MBTI or it's, it's derivatives. Um, and I can tell you that that is a method and you will get more attention that way because just because of name recognition. But at the end of the day, it's about the quality output you're generating with these assessments and your ability to apply them to the actual business strategy and the, the problems you're addressing within the organization. And I'm done. Okay. Thanks guys. <laughs> We have a couple new people on the platform. Uh, I know Tom's calling on people, but I'd like to call on Angela. Angela, what, would you mind sharing a little bit of what you're thinking, what you've heard? Yes. Sure. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Awesome. Awesome. There's been some very good information um, provided so far. And I just like to say my disclaimer I am nor for psychological assessments, nor against them. And um, I, I say this because I forgot who said it, the updating and integrating the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging elements into uh, psychometric testing is very, very important. I will also say that I just went through the last 18 months of training my highest performer to take my job. Um, I recently left the company um, that I work for to make my business full-time. And I'll say, using an individual development plan to actually help this individual with something, a characteristic that was personal, uh, he, this individual was monotone, and the feedback he was given prior to uh, me working with him and developing him was none of the other leaders could understand his emotions because he was so monotone. Now you can imagine giving someone this feedback, telling them something they've been born with, they've dealt with all their lives, that this is the reason why I can't consider you as a leader. So talking to this person and putting them on a development plan and helping them with speech and language and things like that, obviously the person was willing to do this. They had the desire to be in leadership. So they were willing to work on this personal characteristic, but I guess, my my issue is, you know, when do we get to a point where we take these tests and things that we issue that have that have been empirically backed and actually get to the root cause of people and how the brain works and feelings and things like that? Because that situation in particular was so personal, not only for that individual, but for me as well. It's very sensitive. So, you know, 
when we're looking at individual contributors and we're saying we want to make great leaders out of them, you know, where where are the boundaries, um, you know, that we don't want to cross when it comes to, okay, I'm going to take something so personal and, you know, try to make this person, I'm doing the quotation things with my fingers, you all can't see it, but make this person better, you know? So I'd like to hear some thoughts on that because it, the situation worked out for me because the individual was willing to be a better leader. Um, and then teaching that person how to lead their peers. That was another difficult thing too. Now that I'm gone, I still keep in touch with the individual. And um, we worked on a lot of soft skills because technically this person was amazing. This person could do their job technically with their eyes closed, but it was all the other soft skills and the touchy touchy feeling type stuff, you know, that we had to address in the individual development plan. Thanks very much for that, Angela. And I, I, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, especially when it comes to those soft skills, they really are undervalued. Uh, Ariana, uh, welcome back to the stage. You want to unmute your mic and join the conversation. Hi, everyone. Thanks for the invite. Um, honestly, it's kind of interesting. I have so many thoughts here. I'm not really sure where to start. But I, like Sarah, in my last role as a leadership consultant was tasked with investigating and also I actually loved taking as well a wide range of personality assessments. Um, but my use of them was really a lot more confidential and with leaders one-on-one -on -one and existing leaders. So the idea of using them for individual contributors is interesting but a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, I um, must say. Um, that being said, I, I do love personality assessments. I do think we should gravitate to the ones that are evidence-based. Um, although I joke that like we all have seen many different forms on BuzzFeed and beyond, what kind of Pop-Tart are you and things like that. So as IOs, I think we have a responsibility to review the validity and reliability reports and make sure that we are presenting best-in-class personality inventories. But for really anyone, I think they're a great source of self-awareness. Um, they tell us where we are in comparison to a different group. And I think that provides new insights. Um, but like Angela mentioned, we also need to be aware of the sensitivities that can arise and the vulnerability that needs to be present and therefore the trust that needs to be built in order for these to be used effectively. Um, and then lastly, the thing I'll say is I think we should also have an idea of the outcome we want in mind. I think there's a lot of different ways to leverage personality assessments, whether it's coaching individuals or giving it to a team or organization as a whole to start building a framework of understanding of individual differences, which then can build an interesting culture where people can reference different personality archetypes or characteristics. Um, so I'll stop there, but those are just a few things that are coming to mind as we have this discussion. Jeremy, over to you. Thanks. I see Brendan has his hand up. So Brendan, I'm going to throw it to you in about 30 seconds if you'll come up, if you have that question or comment. And I wanted to just make a quick uh, kind of an admin note. <clears throat> By the way, this is I'm, I'm absolutely loving all of the insight and all the expertise and thought leadership here. For those of you who haven't, when you go into your to your profile here on Deep Dive, you can add up to five areas of expertise, whether it be leadership or psychology or coaching, creativity, problem solving. 
um, if you want, feel free to add those. Um, there is a, there's a number of a number of people who I've went because you can endorse and be and be endorsed for particular skills. And I've noticed over the past two weeks that there's people I've gone to their profile to endorse them for communication skills or problem solving skills, whatever, and they don't have their skills up. So I'm unable to endorse. And I'm sure there's other people that are wanting to endorse you too. So when you have a moment, if you want, go to your profile on the deep dive app and just add, you can add whatever your, uh, your five expertise skills are. And, and that's great. And also be, feel free to endorse other people and, and follow who you like, but I'm going to throw it back over to Brandon to uh, figure out how we can continue to make great leaders. And uh, you either have a comment or a bounce off of maybe what Dr. Pearson, by the way, hi, Dr. Pearson and hi, Ariana. Good to have you both here and Christina as well. And everyone down there, Brand Brendan, 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 you're up. Uh, thank you, Jeremy. Um, I, I definitely could relate 100% with what Ariana said about the uh, which Pop-Tart are you. Um, I want to caution everyone on here that there are plenty of fake assessments out there that are masquerading as real assessments. And um, they're most likely not the actual version of it because I've had uh, senior leadership at different organizations come to me and go, oh, yeah, I took this assessment. And I said, OK, can you please send me the website that you got it from? And it was pretty much looked legit, but it was the same thing as um, I think the exact wording I used was, which Gilmore girl are you? Uh, very similar to the which Pop-Tart are you? So I just want to make sure everyone is aware of that as a concern, as there are plenty of uh, spoof um, assessments out there as well. Thank you very much for that, Brendan. Um, Jeremy, it's been a really interesting conversation to listen to. And there's been a lot of... Um, comments about you know we've heard a lot about testing and things along those matters tools that we can use i, I want to bring it to sort of a basic level and i know you hate why questions so i'm going to ask you one uh, <laughs> the question is how do ios work with potential leaders my question is why why do i need you know, if i'm a corporate executive why do i need an io why can't i just walk in walk into someone's office and go Hey, uh, I want you to lead the team. Here's a book on leadership. That's great. And that actually, it's one of the notes that I have down is really getting the, and I have read down, you know, breakthrough by getting the with the whiff amount, the what's in it for me out for CEOs down to managers in order to enable this, um, this uh, augmenting of, of individual contributors. And why IOs specifically? IOs were a... Um, I think in particular, you're looking at IOs because IOs are going to look at things and really echoing what Sarah and, and what everyone else in this room is saying is such a grounded approach and this, this critical thinking and problem solving thing based on a couple of things. You know, the reason we went into IO in the first place, so now we have, um, you know, a passion and intent and also the, the skills you know, learned throughout the degree and throughout the practice of IO are so grounded. And we're constantly going back to avoid what's here just because it's popular, avoid doing things just because, avoid doing things just to check a box, do things with purpose, with intent, and be able to follow through. And also having our eye, our eye on that ever so uh, distant ROI and also return on expectations. So 
looking at it from an IO standpoint, we're really looking at, um, we're looking at the whole, we're, a lot of us are systems oriented and looking at the whole aspect. So not only just changing behavior, um, you know, one of the kind of rules that, that I follow is it's really hard to change attitude in the workplace. You can change behavior and you can condition people positively, but looking at the individual, looking at the individual characteristics, the underlying um, passions, ambitions, and talents, the ones that are visible, but also looking at the environment. How can we change the environment of the workforce? Um, I, I see this every, literally every day. I notice every day when just being a parent where a simple change in an environment, whether it be moving an object to a different place, that's changing the environment, can change behavior without having this push and pull. And how many organizations have this push and pull? So when we look at these things and we figure out what's in it for the CEO, um, everyone wants their next, their, their tomorrow to be better. So how can we make that easier? That's when we were looking at um, that we're not looking at a top-down approach. We're not looking at a bottom-up approach. We're looking at more of a holistic approach and how these chess pieces interact with each other because we're, we have our eye. We're also you know, future-focused. So we're looking at long-term, again, succession planning and how can we start to take the reason that people were came to an organization. In the, in the, I just had this conversation last night with a friend who is a, a super, so I'm going to just give an example. I had this conversation last night with my friend who is a supervisor at a big company. Um, and it's a company where they do uh, a lot of uh, construction, a lot of hands-on work. And he said, plain to me, he said, I'm a terrible supervisor and I know it, but I just know that if I do something the right way, if I do something, it'll get done the right way. And this person that's uh, uh, my employee they have skills and everything, but they're constantly second guessing themselves. So I, I couldn't help but getting into that and saying, you know, I'm guessing that this person's been, you know, they've been under you for how many years? They're probably second guessing yourself because you always come in and you always have to have things done a different way. And it goes back to the point where, you know, then it's the question, when, when this person became with the company, started with the company, did they have, did they get hired for a reason? Yeah, they're really good at X, Y, Z. Okay, well, what happened to what they were really good at? Well, we don't really notice it. Well, why don't you notice it? Because when people come to an organization with an education, with talents, with special skills, they come to that organization and then they're told what to do because their, their leaders weren't taught to lead properly. So it's interesting. We've got this paradox where now, let's say I'm working in an organization as an individual contributor, but unfortunately, my manager is also still behaving like an individual contributor, where my manager is um, keeping his or her focus on my task rather than on me as an individual. So how in the world can my manager teach me how to be a leader and keep my eye focused on the person of someone else when they aren't doing it for me? So it's really this I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to say the word toxic, but I'm not going to use that here because, but it's close because you look at what happens when something's toxic, it just eats everything up, but it's, it's darn near close to that where it just starts to feed on itself and then it just consumes itself. And that's a big problem for, for CEOs, CEOs have anyone in any CXO has tons and tons and tons of Un, of uh, untapped resources, untapped 
talents and we go back, I always go back to Elihu Goldratt's theory of constraints. Any unused resource is considered a free resource. So when you look at the C-suite, when you look at the, the CEO, what do they have in organizations? So much free, so many free resources. And that is the already skills and talents that people already have. And it goes untapped. What happens? The question then becomes, what happens? Not only it's, it, I stay away from how do we motivate people? And I go back to how do we remove constraints to motivation? People are already motivated. People already are motivated to, uh, for many different reasons. So how can, how can we look at the C-suite and show them how an IO can come in and remove constraints to people's natural motivation, natural leadership ability, and also identify, because not everyone's going to have the same amount or type of ability. How can we identify those who are going to be the better leaders in the organizations and what exactly can we do? And then I'll bring it back to the assessment part because that has a lot to do with it. So Tom, that's a uh, long answer to your short question. I'm going to go ahead, Trip. I see your, actually, Tom, I haven't been looking at my phone. I don't know who had their hand raised first. So back over to you, Tom. Well, we're going to go trip, uh, Brendan, you know, and then Arianna, if you, oh, your hand is back up now. Great. So trip, let's start with you. There's a lot of ways of looking at an assessment. And I think the other part of this is, and I find, especially for a lot of my older clients, when they get assessed for the first time, tend to use it as a, a crutch. They say, oh, I do this because I'm this or because I'm that or because I'm this. And, and the other part is you have to remember what, and when people become aware of what they do and how they see the world for the first time many times. It, it, you have to understand, you, you have to give them enough space to navigate in. I think you still have, I, I would think that a lot of times what will happen to people is they're very technically proficient at what they do. And there are a lot of people in this room like this. The other part though, is you still have to have that relationship with them because trust is the foundational element for IO. <laughs> and if it's not in place, you're going to have a lot of hard times. The other is helping people better understand what this really means to them. And one of the ways I do this a lot is I take them out of the work context. I look for opportunities to ask them questions about things that are not work-related because it's much easier for them to see it sometimes with their children, with their spouses, with their significant others. Uh, I think the other part I wanted to make sure we talked about is, remember, it's all the way you see the world. Most assessments are your own assessment of yourself. And it's meaning it's self-administered and has some bias because you have your own biases. But the other component of that is, Understanding it's how they see the world. I, I did a, a, a lot of times when you work in a team environment, I'll use team assessments. And one of the weird things about it is you can see the team dynamic almost shift immediately. And why is that? What's happened? You know, all that's happened is awareness. You've taken no action yet. So consider when you're talking to people, when you're talking and having that conversation with them or an individual or a team, that how they see the world and how they see themselves is just as critical uh, to understand maybe more so, especially if they're in a, a highly volatile environment, than what the test tells them. And this test is an opportunity to have a common shared language together to talk about things. And don't look at it as being the end all. Look at it as a process and also something you can use as a way of opening up not only your view of who they are, but their view of who others are. And you'll be surprised how quick the results start to change the way they want them to. Uh, so just a thought, because we got to remember, and, and I don't mean to say it this way, but these are people <laughs> and, and people need to feel comfortable through change. 
if you want them to change a lot. And I think we, we have an opportunity to use assessments to do some of that. Assessments can be fun. They can be silly. That's why I love some of the silly assessments because it, 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 it breaks the ice. But think about it from the point of view of interactivity with themselves and then interactivity and in how they see other people. Thank you. Thanks for that trip, Brendan. Uh, thank you so much. I, I think I want to piggyback a lot off of what Jeremy and Tripp said, because I, I kind of already had this thread going in my head. Um, so just bear with me on this one. So when Jeremy's talking about the, um, you know, that supervisor who who doesn't trust that employee and does, so I'll borrow a line from the office, you're, you're creating a culture of microgement, um, where you just don't trust that employee. So you micromanage them and you're not giving them the opportunity to prove themselves and to grow and to learn and to set them up. So, Hey, I'm going to learn on my own. I'm going to make the mistakes, but I'm going to learn from my mistakes. And now I'm going to be a successful employee. And within the question of what can an IO do for a organization, I'm going to, I'm going to come at this from my external consulting perspective. My goal with your organization is that I don't want you to be addicted to me. I want to show you how to do it. I want you to get to the area that you need to go and be comfortable with it and give you all the skills and recognize all the talent that you have at your organization. And then I can get the hell out. You can run your show. And if you need me again for another project or another engagement, cool, by all means. But I don't want you addicted to me, need to keep me for X number of years because then ultimately I'm just not doing my job and maybe this was just not the right engagement. And that's also what you have to consider in the beginning of these relationships. Are you going to do a service to this client or are you just going to have them as an addict? And that's the term I used, but I don't like having addicts. I like creating successful organizations. Thank you very much for that, Brendan. Ariana. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of add to this conversation of posing viewpoint around, you know, trying to make all leaders individual contributors. And this kind of just stems from being a leadership consultant and seeing how little leadership development happens across all other levels. And there's a fact out there <laughs> that 85% of first-time leaders actually get no training. So kind of to Jeremy's point, I think sometimes we have to start at people who are leaders, teach them what it means to be a leader, how to move from micromanaging to delegation. And then at that point, empowering um, first time leaders to become strong leaders, but then to help transition their knowledge of becoming a leader to individual contributors. And often that can involve really small things like having them lead projects that the first that the frontline leader used to lead and helping them ramp up, but a lot th more through leadership modeling and on the job learning, where it's kind of a slow succession from individual contributor to leader um, from someone who has strong leadership qualities to start with. And thank you very much for that. Uh, Jeremy, it is about five minutes to the top of the hour. You want to let us know what happens at the top of the hour. Thanks, Tom. Yes. Uh, so at one o'clock Eastern time in five minutes, we are going into our other room. How, how your managers can create small wins each day by air quotes, but not air quotes doing the opposite. 
So we will duck out of here and we will head into that room at one o'clock Eastern time in about four minutes. And Jeremy, let me ask you, since you posed this question of, of how we work to make great leaders, uh, have you picked up anything new today or is it uh, confirmed any of your beliefs? I've picked up a lot. I have a stem of notes. Um, I'll go with the recency effect and really ju I'm just going to echo and love what, what, what Brendan said about don't, you know, if you're a consultant, your job isn't to have them addicted to you. I, I, I love that. Do your, you know, doing a good job, you give other people the skills. Um, you're really engaging them in, in three-person teaching where you're, you're teaching people in an organization not to learn something that, so they can use it, but so they can really learn and encode it. It's called elaborative rehearsal so that they can, um, they know something so enough so that they live it and they can teach someone else. And once you get, and I'll, I'll encourage this from anyone that's just, just teaching, whether you're teaching your child or a, a skill or a training or whatever it is, Get people and say it right up front. Say, "I want you to, I want you to, you know, be in the space with me today." So not so that you're you're learning and taking something in, but I want your perspective to be that you're going to go teach someone else this. It'll help them to encode differently in their experiences, and uh, that'll also help them. It, it, it's also a great tool when you're coaching people to be to become leaders because you're not just teaching them leadership skills; you're helping them to use these skills and even teach other people how to use these skills. And again, it's that domino effect and it's how you can get, how you can get people to, to cut ties with you, not cut ties. Nah, they go on until the next project comes so that, that they can have the skills that they need to, to keep going. So well done, Brendan. I, I love that. Uh, and thank goodness for the recency effect. That's a very powerful point. Yeah, I think we had a great conversation today. And, I, I and trip final thoughts. How they're going to act on it because I think there's a lot of information with the process, but it'd be interesting to see how people take action on this and, and what they're going to do differently now that they've heard different perspectives on some of these is issues. So I uh, just like to say, you know, the, the other thing that's always striking to me is I think we have to uh, remove the wall between IO and our clients. Uh, if you keep thinking of yourself as being something separate and distinct because you're IO, you're probably always going to be an IO and, and that's going to limit your career. Not because there's not great IOs in the world, but more from the point of view of the kind of impact everyone in this room wants to have in a career requires certain things to happen to be successful. And I just, I would like, you know, as you look forward into the next group of things we talk about is understand that sometimes you have to take the IO hat off for a little bit and say, look, what, what would I do if I was just a great employee? And that will give you a different answer than what you would do as an IO. And it may be a better answer to consider, especially if you're working with an organization that's not used to dealing with a lot of the change that they have to right now. And with that, I think it's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, Jeremy, do you want us to uh, leave the room and we'll meet you in 30 seconds over at the next Yep, room? That would be fantastic. So anyone, please go ahead and join in the next room and I'll go ahead and close this room out now. Uh, closing in five, four, three, two, and one. Thanks everyone for being here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com.